You may be seated. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me and to Jonah chapter 3. If you're visiting with us, uh, we are working our way through uh, the book of Jonah. Currently, we regularly work through books of the Bible. Um, and, uh, and our fall series really is looking at the heart of God as it is revealed in a number of different places. So as you're turning there, a couple of quick announcements. Next Sunday evening, uh, we're going to have our annually, annual chili cook-off um, that will be Sunday evening. We're going to have bounce houses for the kids. Um, and so even if you, don't, if, you, if you want to cook chili, we'd love for you to submit that. Um, and uh, details will be and have been in the weekly newsletter. Second announcement, um, we have two books uh, that we are giving away. Um, and so during Coffee Fellowship, on the book table in there, you can grab one. One is Gentle and Lowly. Um, that has been graciously given to us by Crossway. And another book is Prayers of a Parent for Young Children. Now, we were sitting around the other day looking at these. We had bought a number of these trying to resource parents uh, for parenting. Um, I often say that uh, we, we get parenting wrong. We think that uh, we're the parents and God's here to help. Um, rather that God is the great parent. He's the great father of our children. And we are here to join his mission of parenting our children. When we flip that, we, uh, we often causes us much anxiety um, and despair in our children. And this series, Prayers of a Parent, um, had four, uh, has four to them, four series, Praying for Young Children, which we have a stack to give away. We have a lot of young parents. We have a stack to give away. Prayers for teens, older children, and, and uh, prayers for your adult children. Um, and we were looking at the table the other day, and, and, this, and the stack sort of went like this. Prayers for young children and the prayers for the uh, older adult children were gone. And I looked at my wife and thought, isn't that the trajectory of parenting? When we were little, younger, not little, younger, we thought, man, we, I, think we could, I think we could figure this out. And then as your children get older, you think, oh, Lord, you've got to do a work in their life and redeem them. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've messed them up so far that Jesus can't even do anything with them anymore. I'm assuming that also there's a trajectory to income um, with that as well, um, and, uh, and that the, the prayers for parents of young children wasn't picked up as fruitfully um, because of the $5 fee, so we're going to give those to you um, as well. So grab one of those, um, and feel free, if any of those, to pick one up for friends, family members, maybe your own children, um, and give those to you. To, uh, we'd love to resource you with those. Jonah chapter 3. This is God's Word. If you have your Bibles, um, we're actually going to read through verse 4 of chapter 4. So Jonah 3, starting with verse 1 and then reading through Jonah 4. 4. Familiar with the story, Jonah has run from God. God, in the midst of a storm, had Jonah thrown over. God saved Jonah in the belly of a great fish. The fish now has spit Jonah out on dry ground. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days in 
breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and may turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? This is God's word. We should ask his blessing on the word preached. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to your word, You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are the one who died to sin for our sin and were raised to new life. New creation power is at your disposal. And so we would pray by your word, speak to us today so that we might leave here changed by your grace and your power. Maybe some tasting the goodness of the gospel for the first time, but all of us needing to be renewed in it. And so, preach to us today, Lord Jesus, by your spirit, through your word. In your name we pray, amen. Well, Jonah is is probably one of the best known books in the Old Testament. It's captured the heart of more artists than almost any other book In the Bible, certainly more than any other book in the Old Testament, more paint has been used to portray this story than any other story in the Bible. Even if you're not a Christian, you probably have a little familiarity with it. A prophet runs from God and gets swallowed up by a sea creature. Let me suggest that that familiarity with the story might betray us. Because we think of Jonah as a story of a reluctant prophet. The guy who didn't want to go where God was calling him. The guy who ran from God's call on his life. I had a friend of mine just tell me this week about his call to ministry. It went something like this. He was not wanting to go into ministry. 
And the thing that convinced him one night is his wife came to him and said, look, I don't want to get swallowed up by a whale with you. So he went into ministry. But Jonah isn't a story of reluctance. It's not a story of a man running from God's call. It's a story of a self-righteous prophet. A story told to Israel about the evil of self-righteousness, the wickedness of a heart that condemns others, and God's relentless pursuit of those who are stuck in the glue trap of anger and hate. It's one of the reasons that we've followed up Jonah on the heels, the back end of the parable of the two sons, because In essence, they are telling the same story of God pursuing the older brother. God working redemption in the lives of those who trusted in themselves and looked down on others with contempt. See, Jonah isn't the story of God going out in mission to a sinful world. That's a subtext of the story. God's mission to the world that is at odds with him, but it is primarily the story of God pursuing his self-righteous people to work redemption in their lives. It's Jonah who must be redeemed by the Lord who is on mission to redeem sinners. And it's Jonah who stands in the place of God's people, Israel, who too must experience God's grace. It's Jonah who must again through, go through the experience of death and resurrection, as Keaton pointed out last week, despair, then deliverance, so that he might experience the grace of God afresh and anew. It's, it's God's people who need to be brought again to repentance and faith. It's us, it's me, it's you. We need to be pursued by God so that we could be renewed again because it's easy for us to fall into the trap of trusting in ourselves and looking on others with contempt. And in this story, as in every story in the Bible, in this story in particular, we see the heart of God, a heart of abundant grace that pursues and redeems a heart that is not reluctant to forgive, but quick to forgive. A heart that is patient towards you, as Jeff read from Second Peter, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So if you're taking notes, three points today. The heart of God towards sin. The heart of God towards repentance. And then the heart of Jonah as a warning. So first, the heart of God towards sin. We see this. He by no means overlooks evil. His judgment is coming to Nineveh. They were a warring nation. The Assyrians were a warring nation. They regularly subjugated the people they conquered. And they subjugated them into slavery. They would regularly impale their victims on stakes and then leave them around the conquered lands as a warning to the people that they had taken over. They loved to win and they loved to conquer and they loved to shed blood. And so God is intent on sending Jonah to Nineveh to prophesy a warning of judgment. Verse 1 and 2. 
The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I'm going to tell you. It's a reiteration of the opening verses of the book. In Jonah 1-2, we read a similar thing. God here, though, gives a reason as to why he has a message against Nineveh. Arise, go to Nineveh, and call out against it because their evil has come up against me. God, the judge of all the earth, watches all things because he rules over all things. He's not a parochial God. He's not your God or my God, the one true God who rules as king over all creation and is thus the God of the nations. And he will hold all people accountable. No one can hide from his all-seeing eye and no sin is so small that it does not offend his holiness. This is a difficult truth. When we swim in the waters that tell us that we craft our own reality and we are ultimately accountable only to ourselves, that we are the only judge and jury that matters. And yet, no matter how much we try to numb out the voice of condemnation that seems like it swirls around us all the time, we cannot snuff it out because it's in our own heart. You've not done enough. These things will find you out. And the reason it condemns us is because our conscience is a moral sense. It's like, it's like our sense of sight and smell. It apprehends an objective reality outside of ourselves. And what it apprehends is the sense that we will be held accountable to God, the judge of all the earth. That's what's stark about chapter 1, verse 2. It's a bit jarring to hear in this context. The people of God, the God who has set up his home in Jerusalem amongst his people Israel, his eye is also on the whole earth and the evil of Nineveh, Nineveh has come up before him. Way out, way out to the east, his eye is there, he's noticed And he's unwilling to turn a blind eye toward the evil of this world. And so he's going to pour out his wrath upon the nation of Assyria. And so we pick up in verse 4 of chapter 3 now. Jonah announces God's message to the great city Nineveh in 40 days. Nineveh is going to be overthrown. It's technical language. It's rich language. In an Israelite's mind, that language of overthrown would have immediately brought up the image of the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the same word used there in Genesis 18 because God's conjuring up an image. Sodom and Gomorrah were completely destroyed. It was a lush valley, vegetation all over the place. But they were consumed under the fire of God's wrath. You imagine an apocalyptic scene from a movie. 
fire dropping down out of the sky, leaving the landscape desolate, the once fertile valley, now looking like death valley, barren and without life because the judgment of God had overthrown all things. Keaton referred to it last week as decreation. God's judgment turning back the fertile creation of the world and making it desolate and void again. That's the warning that Jonah is giving against the sin of Nineveh. God's overthrowing it in 40 days. It's a warning, an alarm that is meant to sound. And like a fire alarm in a house, it's telling them, you've got to flee Because something, someone is coming with destructive force in judgment for your sins. But it's an alarm. It warns of something that's coming. Like the fire alarm in your house. This alarm goes up to us even today. The judgment of God will come into this world and we will be held accountable to him for all that we've done. The secret things, the things that have not caught up with you yet, we all have them, have been recorded and will be held accountable. And in that day, the Lord of the nations will overthrow you in his wrath. And so Peter reminds us again, don't count his patience as indifference. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Like that. That's the heart of God towards sin. But the heart of God is much, 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 much more than just that, particularly towards sinners who are under his wrath. Because he sends Jonah to warn them. It's an act of grace. It's a heart of patience and kindness. A heart that's not quick to anger, but slow to anger and abounds in loving kindness. And in this way, God's heart is so very different from ours. We, we first, if we're honest, in our, in our, in our, even in our best moments, this is true, we first look at people who we assume are evil and then conclude they must be destroyed. Is that not the heart of cancel culture? Evil must be destroyed. Quickly, without mercy, no second chances, no forgiveness. Must Wrath must come down and they've got to be overthrown now. And it's also the heart of those who rail against cancel culture. See, the people on the other side of the aisle often think because of the evil they see, that's got to be destroyed quickly and without mercy. Because we're addicted to the drug of outrage. It's in me. But God's heart is so very different. It overflows with grace and mercy. And he sees evil people who first must be redeemed, not destroyed. And so he sends Jonah 
He, he sends him. Assyria was a constant threat to the prosperity of God's kingdom and God's people. This was a time when the great nation of Israel was on decline, had seen its heyday, and was beginning over time to see its decline. As a result, nationalism was on the rise in Israel. And Assyria was the great threat to this once prosperous nation. So Jonah wanted them to be destroyed, but God wanted them to be saved, redeemed. That's why he sent Jonah to Nineveh to warn them so that they might experience the grace and mercy of God, not to cancel them, but to redeem them. And the story comes to a climax with repentance. Four different times the Hebrew word for repentance is used from six, verse 6 onward. And notice this. Even a little repentance turns back God's wrath. Because it, it makes room for his grace and mercy to come flooding into our lives. Jonah's sermon is quite short. It's just five words in the original language. Children don't get any ideas. I care more for you than Jonah did for Nineveh, so my sermons are going to be a bit longer. Jonah just does an obligatory announcement, verse 4. Yet 40 days Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people believed God. And they put on sackcloth, covering themselves with ashes. They're, they're dressing the part. They're dressing down. It's performative. They're performing. They call a fast. And then in verse 6, the camera zooms in a bit. And we see another scene in the same storyline. The word makes it from the city streets even to the king of Nineveh. And he issues a decree. Nor Man nor beast can even drink. But let me suggest this. This is not saving repentance. This is not repentance unto life. This is not repentance that clings to God for salvation. This is just generic worldly repentance. There's no crying out, Lord, save me. In fact, nowhere do the Ninevites in their repentance use the covenant and personal name of the Lord. They're just using some generic name, God. It's not that they're bowing their knee to the Lord of all the earth. They're simply saying, look, this regional deity of Israel seems to be a little upset with us, and so perhaps this will appease him. It's what the Apostle Paul calls worldly sorrow. It's just simply the fear of punishment. Children, it's the kind of Fear that you have when you apologize to your parents simply because you want to avoid being disciplined. Not because you're sad over your sin. But do you see how God responds with even this small and selfish repentance? He pours out his abundant mercies. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. They turned away from evil. God pours out his mercy. Now, how much more when repentance turns from evil 
and lays hold of the mercy of God that is in Jesus Christ, does repentance cause God's grace to come flooding out of his heart in overwhelming ways. It is, as we've said repeatedly, the gateway to experience joy. We saw this same response in abundance in the lost parables of Luke 15. They all end with repentance, heaven rejoicing, great parties being thrown And it's the gateway to experiencing joy to lay hold of Jesus Christ and to say, God, I've sinned against heaven and before you, but I've got Jesus. He paid the debt for my sin. You gave him to me and he's all that I need. You see, God had taken Jonah to Nineveh, not just so that Nineveh might be spared, but so that Jonah might see the tremendous heart of God that abounds in grace and mercy so his, God's own people, would be refreshed again. It's the same message that God gave to Solomon when the temple was dedicated. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. That is the heart of God towards those who are in Christ. That's the heart of God towards the outsider. Just a little bit of repentance. How much more? Thomas Goodwin, the great Puritan pastor, once said, Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness are increased and enlarged by his showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth. It's enlarged. It's a great joy of the Lord Jesus to pardon, relieve, and comfort his people. Now, Dane Ortland, in the book that we're giving away, Gentle and Lowly, grab a book. Maybe this will, maybe this will wet your taste for it a little bit. He illustrates it this way. He says, imagine this scenario. A compassionate doctor has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. He's had medical equipment flown in. He's correctly diagnosed the problem. The antibiotics are prepared and available. He's independently wealthy, needs no need of payment of any kind. He, as he seeks to provide care, finds those who are afflicted refusing care. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. And so finally, a a few brave men step forward to receive the care that's being freely provided. What does the doctor feel at that moment? Joy. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. It's the whole reason he came. And so with us, and so with Christ. He does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. It's what he came to heal. You see, that's all repentance is. Lord, I can't. 
I shouldn't have. I can't. I can't rescue myself. I can't get my own pardon. I can never appease your wrath on your own. But Christ just simply goes out of myself into Jesus. Now that would be a good place to end the story. But it's not where the story ends. Because, as is often the case, the heart of God is not the heart of God's people. Jonah wants a God who smites bad people and rewards good people. A God who is harsh against the people that Jonah doesn't like. We saw a similar reaction again in the parable of the two sons. The older son's most prominent response to the grace that is shown to the younger son is anger. And so when they repent, and God shows them abundant, the mercy of God's heart flows out in abundance and he relents. I'm not going to do it. I won't do it. Verse 1 of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. It's a bit of a tame translation. Your Bible might have a footnote here that Jonah considered it exceedingly evil. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord. Basically says, I told you so. I told you this was what was going to happen. You'd be gracious to these people. Now, just as a strategy, if you don't take anything else away, maybe take this. Saying I told you so to God is not a good idea. But saying I told you so when God has shown mercy is the world's worst idea. But you see, God's heart is such that it goes out. It pursues. And so he goes out after Jonah. I've said this before. It's easy to come become self-righteous about the self-righteous. It's easy to become condemning and critical about those who are condemning and critical about others. But God goes out. He's gone on a mission to redeem, not first to destroy, but first to redeem. He goes out as a rescuer. And notice this. That often for those in his care, the rescuing heart of God that is abundant in mercy and grace goes out with a question. And so he asks him, verse 4, chapter 4. Do you do well to be angry? Jonah's anger is justified. Assyria was a constant threat to the life of Israel. They were constantly pressuring Israel, forcing them to pay tribute, invading the land, stealing the way their people to idolatry. Jonah wanted God's wrath poured out on them because he wanted them destroyed. But the heart of God is so much, much, much different. He doesn't look first on people who are evil and must be destroyed, but first looks at evil and says, that's got to be redeemed. And this is where the Jonah story really is reaching its climax with this question. It's coming to a point. 
you know it's coming to a point because starting in verse 3, God's given him a second chance. This is what God does, right? It's a long-suffering, patient heart of God. He doesn't give up, but he rather gives second chances to his people and third and fourth and on and on and on and on. And Jonah's repentance, even as he gets, he's gone into the belly of a fish. He's called out for God's saving grace. The fish saved him, spit him on a dry ground. God gives him a second chance. And even then, his repentance is pretty weak. It doesn't quite match the depth of his crime against God or the saving grace that God has shown him. God saves him. But Jonah's new obedience is just bare minimum. He just walks far enough into the city. We're told it's a three-day journey, most likely from the edge of the suburbs to the edge of the suburbs. And then we're told he goes a day's journey, just gets on the inside of the wall. So technically, he could say, I've been in the city. In a sentence in Hebrew, it's just five words. It's a little bit longer in our translation, but it's just five words. It's like literally, yet 40 days, the industry be overthrown. Fine God, I did it. But God doesn't go out and overthrow Jonah. His heart still has not been melted by the grace that God has shown him. And so he goes out to rescue Jonah again. But this time with a question. Do you do well to be angry? To be honest here, as the world is becoming increasingly post-Christian, the church is losing its place of prominence. One question needs to be asked of God's people again. Do you do well to be angry? Instead of falling into the trap of fighting the culture war or even the using the language of war in battle that is an intent on framing things as us against them, which will quickly degrade into putting people into the categories of righteous and evil, Whenever we do that, we always want to put ourselves in the category of righteous and the people that we're against in the category of evil, treating every conflict like it's a zero-sum game. I see it in myself. Every conflict that I find myself in, this is the tendency of my heart. And when we do that, someone's got to pay. Let me see what the gospel says to us. Your offense against God has been paid for by God. And I've said a few weeks ago, any diagnosis of the problem of the world always has to include me. In those famous words of G.K. Chesterton, Sir, what's wrong with the world? I am. And when we put people in the categories of someone must win and someone must lose, whether it's in marital conflict, I've got to be right, my spouse has to be wrong. Those who differ with me politically or theologically must be fought. Then the end goal is always to win. When outrage eclipses long-suffering. And when rivalries feel more exhilarating than kindness. When anger feels more righteous than gentleness. It's not the world that needs repentance. It's us. And so as much as we love to have sermons end on the great mercy of God shown to us in Christ, both the prodigal son and the Jonah narrative ends with a cliffhanger. Do you 
do well to be angry. Let's pray. Lord, I confess that my heart does not match yours. The fruit of sin in this world is anger and loathing, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. but the fruit of the Spirit that comes from the crucified and risen Savior who died for sins and died for sinners that we might be reconciled to God. That Savior came out of your abundant heart of grace and mercy and the fruit that He bears is love, joy, peace and patience and kindness gentleness and self-control against these things no law needs to be constructed because these things don't need to be hemmed in but let loose into the world and so we would pray God pursue us until we see afresh and new your grace and abundance and we would we would pray we would beg you that you would, you would take us to, to the places that need to hear the gospel. So that we could, we could be on the front lines of seeing Jesus change people's lives. But Lord, give us the grace not to respond like, like Jonah, but to respond like the angels. Rejoice that the power of God has been displayed in saving sinners like us. And so as we come to this table, we belong here, not because of our own goodness, but because we belong to Jesus Christ. And all that he has is ours. And so, Holy Spirit, take these ordinary elements and use them. Use them so that we might taste and see that the Lord is good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.